Transportation link. It's a testament to people who've been working around the clock. I, I can't imagine what it's like to be here at four in the morning, but that's what the shift work is like. The hard work to bring the Coca-Cola back and get the supply chain moving again. Keeping an eye on Omicron, where the COVID variant is taking over and the pressure on test centers in BC. Also new restrictions to hold infections in check. I don't think that people want to go to a place and go, hey, uh, party on here. Day one of new guidelines and how businesses are responding. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We'll have those stories and more in just a moment, but first, some breaking news tonight. That's right, BC health officials dropping some major hints this afternoon that substantial new measures to stop the spread of Omicron are coming. That's in addition to the new restrictions that came into effect today. So we'll bring in our Richard Zussman, who's tracking some of these developments, as well as what we could learn tomorrow about the province's rapid testing program. Richard, there's a lot to cover. What can you tell us? There sure is, Chris, and it feels like deja vu for a lot of British Columbians. As we head into the holidays, expect there to be restrictions announced tomorrow at 1.30 that will have an impact on all of our lives. The restrictions are expected to be targeted towards social gatherings as well as other events. And you just have to look to other provinces sense of what to expect here. Quebec and Ontario have put on restrictions in terms of how many people you can have in your household. Expect British Columbia to have similar rules and expect those to be smaller in number than what we saw starting today. These will be substantial for social gatherings. Again, details at 1.30. And then look at the capacity limits in Ontario and Quebec. Expect restaurants potentially to go to 50% capacity and there could be changing guidance on travel as well. Also, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth will be part of the briefing. That's a clue as well. In the past, he has announced states of emergency as well as travel bans, so that potentially could be coming as well. All of this has led to increased anxiety. We have seen that in a huge push towards people going to get tested against COVID-19, and all of that has put tremendous pressure on our system. Take an anxious public plus a transmissible variant, and this is what you get. A COVID-19 testing system pushed past the brink. We don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> There's not really a lot of places that you can go and just drop in, and appointments are booked up. The pressure mounting all week. On Monday, the YVR testing site closed for an hour because too many people showed up. Traffic being sent here at Heather and 33rd in Vancouver, average weights climbing above four hours. We just need to make it a lot easier for them to be tested in terms of more places they can go, longer hours. British Columbia has closed multiple testing sites since the spring, and with the province on the verge of record-breaking cases, there is now record-breaking demand. Not only are people sick, they're wanting a negative test, even without symptoms, before seeing loved ones. If I'm going to see anyone over the holidays, you want to be better safe than sorry, and I've been exposed. And others admitting they want the negative test to travel, something testing centers could turn down testing for. I uh, guess I have to come up with a better excuse than that one, eh? <laughs> this largely driven by a group Dr. Conway describes as the worried well. 
part of the anxiousness driven by the fact BC has used fewer rapid tests per capita than any other province in the country. But the advice is not to go to a PCR testing site without symptoms, just so you can get proof that you are negative. Let me be extremely clear, is that if you are getting a test because you want to show people that you are not infected so that you can attend a gathering. This is a wrong way to use the test. Meaning negative test results don't give people a pass to go around the measures. But negative tests of any kind do give people the ability to make informed decisions. This is exactly why we needed to see the government put in place uh, some time ago uh, a rapid test strategy that included access to rapid tests. We will be getting that rapid test strategy tomorrow as well, Chris and Sophie. We expect the province to start making rapid tests more readily available for British Columbians. We are already behind almost every other jurisdiction in this. and We will get those details tomorrow on how British Columbians can access their rapid tests. Full coverage on BC One. Richard, thank you very much. Tonight, that's Richard Zussman in Victoria. All right, let's take a look now at the measures that just came into effect today, which, as Richard just told us, will likely be stepped up substantially tomorrow. But for now, the current rules not only limit the capacity of public gatherings, but as Aaron MacArthur reports, how many people you can host in your home over the holidays. Five days until Christmas, and new restrictions have landed across B.C. You can still go to church, have a meal in a restaurant, even see a play, but there are significant limits. Though at this point, BC health officials reluctant to follow Quebec and Ontario's lead and shuttering businesses. When you get to the hundreds, it triples, it triples after that, it triples after that, right? And, and so uh, this is unprecedented in terms of our case numbers. The new rules reach into people's homes once again. Indoor personal gatherings are now restricted to individual households plus 10 people or another individual household so long as everyone is vaccinated. Vague, unenforceable guidelines that will leave a lot of British Columbians trying to read the fine print before sending out Christmas dinner invitations. I think that the personal gathering um, restrictions make sense, especially, you know, that you choose the people you want to see. You're not having um, super onerous restrictions. There's some flexibility. The bulk of the new restrictions, though, happen in public spaces. Sports tournaments are cancelled through the end of January. Organized New Year's parties are cancelled. Any venue that holds more than a thousand people will be reduced to 50% of capacity. One area that has escaped capacity limits is the restaurant industry. Once pegged as a transmission hotspot, people will still be allowed to eat out, but QR codes must be checked and masking guidelines will be enforced. And we made a commitment 20 months ago to do this right, and I think this industry has stepped up more than, more than any other place in North America. Today's restrictions will be short-lived. Tuesday, expect a host of new measures introduced by the provincial health officer. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. COVID case numbers in this province climbed significantly over the weekend. We have 2,550 new cases since Friday afternoon. That's 911 cases between Friday and Saturday, 832 between Saturday and Sunday, and 807 between Sunday and today. 
Three more COVID-related deaths have been reported. 185 people are in hospital. 77 of those patients are in the ICU. Active cases are spiking again to over 5,400 in B.C. and 88.8% of those age 12 and older are now fully immunized. Now, on the eve of new COVID-19 restrictions, struggling B.C. restaurants are getting a temporary reprieve as the province extends a cap on the fees food delivery services can charge them. But as Ted Trinecki reports, the hospitality industry says it needs more support to survive this pandemic. Food delivery services were just starting to become more popular even before the pandemic. But once COVID arrived, things changed rapidly. After the pandemic, we saw on-premise dining decline by half and delivery sales increased by threefold. So a three times increase in delivery sales showed how important this was. To the point deliveries became a mainstay. But when dinner arrived at the door, people saw huge commissions. Victoria stepped in and legislated a cap. Delivery companies could charge no more than 15% commission and 5% for other administrative fees. The program is about to expire in 10 days. Then today's announcement. That the government is extending the fee cap order for food delivery services for another year. Furthermore, delivery companies can't recover costs by reducing drivers' pay or keeping their tips. Smaller companies servicing fewer than 500 restaurants remain exempt from the order. You know, we're in very challenging times still. We've still got about 60% of our uh, table service restaurants that are losing money and going into more debt each month. So anything that the governments can do to help stabilize our costs when we've seen food price increases, labor cost increases, all the uncertainty about the supply chain and, you know, what's next. And that's a question many other businesses outside the restaurant industry are also asking. Restrictions are devastating at all times. They're especially devastating after two years of, of restrictions and reduced sales, bringing any sort of support uh, to help businesses uh, kind of get through the season. Otherwise, the effects are, are going to be devastating. It's going to be hard for, for independent businesses in BC to really hold on much longer. As the Omicron variant starts to become the dominant strain, various health authorities are taking very different steps to deal with it, from doing almost nothing to another full lockdown, as announced in the Netherlands. Ted Schernacki, Global News. Well, essential traffic is once again moving on the Coquihalla five weeks after a number of sections of the road were cut off by November's devastating floods. As John Hua reports tonight, the reopening is weeks ahead of initial schedule thanks to the efforts of hundreds of construction workers going round the clock to restart traffic on that vital corridor. Many truckers say at its worst, it's like driving through frozen hell. But after a month without access to the Coquihalla, it was nothing but a warm reception for the reopening of this critical highway. I'm kind of excited for it to be open. I didn't know it was going to open so soon. I mean, it's a main link. It, you, you can't get through without that one. Barely a month after atmospheric rivers and flooding ripped apart the 543-kilometer stretch in 20 different places. It was sheer determination that opened this key supply route weeks earlier than expected. The only thing that could bring the Coquihalla back was the sheer force of will of the road building community for 31 days straight, round the clock, to get this to happen. We're here in an area called the Othello Washout, which is the perfect example of why the Coquihalla Highway is still an obvious work in progress. On one side of me, the lanes are completely gone and are being rebuilt as we speak. 
On the other side, commercial traffic is once again moving freely, one lane in each direction. This corridor handled anywhere between two-thirds and maybe 70% or more of the commercial traffic on any day uh, in British Columbia. Having much of that diverted back to the Coquihalla or Highway 5 means fewer headaches on Highway 3, which is expected to be open to non-essential traffic on Tuesday. There is, like, trucks, like, they don't stay in their lane. Like, there's a couple times I almost took the wall. Number 3 road is not really good. So, so sharp and so much accident. One of the first drivers to travel through the Coquihalla. It should be interesting to see where, uh, where all the washouts were. Len Kimmer's seeing firsthand the patchwork of fixes reconnecting this province. Make everything a little safer and everything move a little better. All the good. From BC's highway through hell to a beacon of hope for a province just starting to rebuild. John Hua, Global News, near Hope. You see a lot of those scenes on the Coquihalla. Winter officially starts tomorrow and it is really going to feel like it. Winter storm watches and warnings are in effect for parts of the province. Senior meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with what that means. Christy. Thanks, Chris. So we're concerned about snow, freezing rain and extreme cold over the next several days. Now, the extreme cold is days away, and I'll show you that when I come back. In the short term, though, here's a look. For Metro Vancouver and parts of the south coast, starting tomorrow afternoon, especially tomorrow evening and overnight, we have a risk of freezing rain. This means slick conditions on highways, sidewalks, and the potential for power outages because ice can actually break branches and cause those power outages. All of these areas you see here, highlighted have the risk of that again late tomorrow into Wednesday morning not only that the potential for snow best chance of seeing that will be over North Shore uh, Metro Vancouver sort of northeastern sections and especially out through the Fraser Valley and Howe Sound more on the timeline when I come back Chris and of course that extreme cold all right we'll check in later thanks Christy Bills are piling up in the battle over old-growth logging. A Freedom of Information request reveals the law enforcement costs as protesters clash with forestry workers. And it's a big number. That's next on the News Hour. The one-armed robot helping piece together the colorful frescoes of Pompeii. Coming up on the News Hour. And a boost for Moderna. What the latest research says about the effectiveness of its third shot. Right now, the one person has been arrested in relation to Sunday's deadly stabbing near Metrotown Mall in Burnaby. It happened just before noon yesterday. Several people called 911 after one person was stabbed. The victim was rushed to hospital but did not survive. A short time later, the suspect was taken into custody nearby. Police say the victim and suspect were known to each other and there's no further risk to the public. RCMP have made an arrest in the murder of a woman who was found near B.C.'s Highway of Tears. In August 2020, the remains of 34-year-old Crystal Chambers were discovered 40 kilometers east of Prince George near Highway 16. 45-year-old Jason Troy Getty was arrested in Surrey on Friday and charged with second-degree murder and interfering with a dead body. Getty used to live in Prince George and was known to Chambers. Since the 1970s, 18 women have been murdered or have disappeared along the Highway 16 and its adjacent routes. 
We now know just how much the RCMP is spending on the ongoing logging protests in Vancouver Island's Ferry Creek area. The Mounties have made nearly 1,200 arrests while enforcing a court injunction against the illegal protests. And that has come at a huge cost. Kylie Stanton reports. Nearly 17 months, 1,188 people arrested, trying to protect 1,000-year-old trees. But these aren't the only numbers associated with this protest, described as one of the largest acts of civil disobedience in Canadian history. If you're upholding the law and not supporting anarchy, which is what was happening out in the forest, uh, then there's going to be an expense to that. Documents obtained by Global News under the Access to Information legislation show the RCMP has spent more than $6.8 million enforcing a court injunction against the Ferry Creek protesters between May and the end of October of this year. The majority of the costs coming from personnel, listed at nearly $4.7 million and transportation and telecommunications, $1.4 million. It's money that is obviously paid by the taxpayers and could probably have been put to better use rather than hiring a military squad to come in and, and knock the heads of peaceful protesters. The RCMP's conduct during its enforcement has drawn widespread criticism, but it has always maintained officers are simply doing their job. In a statement saying, we do not have the option of refusing to enforce court orders and injunctions, nor can we delay that action indefinitely. They're digging hugely deep, narrow trenches, locking themselves in hard blocks in order to go in and actually uh, even to ask them to leave, and none of them do, they, they've obviously locked themselves in, is putting a lot of people in danger. We live in a democracy, people are able to protest, but uh, at times it comes uh, with, a, with a hefty bill. And this is tax money that could be spent elsewhere, but that's the reality of the situation. Last June, the province announced it would defer old growth logging for two years in Ferry Creek and other areas. But protesters say that doesn't go far enough. The trees are still not protected. We are still there to stay. And while that goes against the wishes of the local First Nation, which has repeatedly asked protesters to leave its territory, it concerns Teal Jones as well. It says $6.8 million, while a big number, doesn't come close to the losses the company has suffered. That number pales in comparison. So that's all I'll say about the, the dollar value. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A new proposed homeless shelter in Penticton would replace the controversial Victory Church shelter that's set to close in the spring, ending a long-simmering feud between the city of Penticton and the B.C. government. Taya Fast has more. Penticton's controversial Victory Church shelter is set to close in the spring of next year, and a new location has been proposed. We needed to identify a, a solution for the folks that were currently residing there. Um, and we, you know, examine different options uh, with the nonprofit, our nonprofit hosting provider uh, partner, as well as with the city and, and determined uh, this new site at, at the Compass Court site as, as a great option for, for a shelter. If approved, the new shelter will be built on Main Street beside Compass Court and Compass House. Tenants will have access to daily meals, hygiene facilities and referrals to health programs. Currently, we have our 30 units of, of uh uh, a shelter. We have uh, soon to have a total of 32 supportive housing units. We're waiting for 12 to be ready. 
and then in the spring uh, we will have an additional 40 units of shelter spaces available with the new construction. Penticton and District Society for Community Living will operate the new shelter in addition to the existing units. You know providing these extra units uh, on a more permanent basis uh, than where we've been located and I think everybody agrees that the current location has not been really suitable and so we're really happy to finally finalize the plans that will get us here uh, into our current location and expand the availability there. BC Housing says they hope to have the new shelter up and running by March. We've applied for a development permit. Uh, we'll be applying for a building permit shortly. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of all hands on deck because we do need to start construction very quickly in, in January. And so um, that's what we'll be working towards. Victory Church has been at the heart of a dispute between the city of Penticton and the BC government. They applied for a, uh, a yearly permit, which city council refused because that was only temporary for that one time only. Uh, and that's what led to um, the problem that uh, we ended up with. The concern that Victory Church is an inappropriate location for a shelter with seniors developments and businesses in the area. They were creating nuisance, uh, uh, bad behavior, uh, screaming, hollering, cussing, all, the, all those things that seniors and other members of the communities don't go for. Since the decision to relocate the shelter, the city of Penticton has withdrawn its lawsuit. TFAS Global News, Penticton. Just ahead, politicians being harassed. It got really elevated really quickly um, and it started to feel unsafe. The scary experience for a Kootenai MLA and others. What's changed in COVID times? And after months of terrifying eruptions and lava flows, La Palma suddenly goes quiet again. Big delays here for westbound traffic on Highway 1 out of Surrey to the Portman Bridge because of a crash involving a bus. Traffic has been reopened after a brief closure and it's slow from 160th on the approach. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Highway 1 in Surrey. A Kootenai MLA is the latest B.C. politician to experience harassing and intimidating behaviour from a small but vocal anti-vaccine movement. RCMP are investigating the disturbing encounter reported by Brittany Anderson. Her experience coming about a week after the Premier and two Cabinet Ministers were hanged in effigy by protesters in Victoria. Catherine Urquhart reports. Hi everyone, I'm Brittany Anderson, MLA for Nelson Creston. MLA Brittany Anderson had just recorded this Christmas video with Creston's mayor, Ron Toyota. I hope you have a safe and enjoyable holiday season with your loved ones. As she returned to Nelson with her assistant on Friday, they stopped here at the top of Kootenai Pass. Then someone drove up and questioned them about BC's public health orders. It got really elevated really quickly um, and it started to feel unsafe. Um, my CA, um, my colleague stepped in front of me and said, you know, this behavior is, is not appropriate. Uh, um, it's bullying. And so we're, we're not going to continue this conversation right now. They started screaming at her. Adding to concerns, the remote location and lack of cell phone service. As they walked away to their car, the situation escalated. They started to drive towards the vehicle, which made us nervous that they were going to either block us from leaving or damage the vehicle or that there could be an incident of violence. So we actually ran to the vehicle. 
This is just the latest troubling incident involving a B.C. politician being targeted. MLA Mike Bernier says he has received death threats for encouraging people to get vaccinated. Earlier this month, B.C.'s premier and two senior ministers were hanged in effigy outside the legislature by anti-vaccine protesters. And Minister Katrine Conroy was recently pushed to the ground. This behaviour has to stop. There's been um, many MLAs from all different parties targeted. The level of aggression is, is quite frankly, it's scary. Anderson and her staffer managed to leave unharmed. But she says she has since received three emails from the person who confronted her at Kootenai Pass. Creston RCMP confirm they are investigating. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Still to come, pandemic protection. Leaving a house without a mask is somewhat unnatural. Demand grows for the type of mask with the best chance to block Omicron. And later, caroling therapy, making spirits brighter by singing. delays here in Richmond on the east-west connector. There's a two-car crash westbound just before Westminster Highway and as a result traffic is backed right over the Alex Fraser Bridge onto the Delta side. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Wisson in Global One high above a crash on the east-west connector in Richmond. The Omicron variant appears to be spreading even faster than first predicted. Quebec in particular has had it very rough and today set a record for daily infections. So far, four provinces, Ontario, B.C., Quebec and Newfoundland, have put restrictions in place. So could the rest of the country be far behind? Mike Drolet reports. Quebecers have been down the restriction road before. They know it's a bumpy ride. But changing the rules mere hours after they went into effect... The province's top doctors seemed as stunned as everyone else. As we say in France, du jamais vu. This, this is unbelievable. The new measures include a mandatory work-from-home order for offices. Bars, casinos, theaters and gyms will be closed. And restaurants can only open between 5 and 10 p.m. with reduced capacity. Quebec has been hardest hit by the Omicron variant. But can the rest of the country be far behind? Ontario, B.C. and Newfoundland have put half measures in place, limiting indoor capacity in restaurants and bars and applying footloose rules to big parties, meaning no singing and dancing. In Toronto, residents had already begun limiting numbers for dinner. Two. It was going to be about 15, and then we uh, cancelled it. Ontario saw long, frustrated lines of people waiting for booster shots after they were made available to anyone over the age of 18 just days after exhausting a large supply of free antigen tests in only a few hours. Most everybody, it appears, is desperate to avoid another lockdown, even though doctors say we haven't hit Omicron's peak. Based on what we're seeing in Europe, there will be a large number of cases over the next two to three weeks. And what happens next depends less on numbers and more on the ability of hospital ICUs to keep up. Mike Lake, Global News, Toronto. In Health Matters tonight, finally some good news in the fight against the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Moderna says its latest research shows its booster shot offers pretty good protection. Moderna says while two doses of its vaccine generate low levels of antibodies against Omicron, a 50-microgram booster increases them by 37 times. A 100-microgram booster 
does even better. Moderna says it'll continue to develop a vaccine specific to Omicron, but for now, its booster will protect people through the coming holiday period and the winter months. The debate over which type of mask provides the best protection has been renewed due to Omicron. And now experts say the medical masks we've been relying on for 20 months may not stand up against the new variant. Global's Travis Fortnum explains. So I've been using masks since the very beginning of the pandemic, like even way before they were required. Through fogged up glasses and a few variants, now Amanda Kokschutz looked at masks as an essential tool. And she's not alone. It's a natural thing now to, like leaving a house without a mask is somewhat unnatural. Like if I go out and get food or something, like I'm doing drive-through and wearing the mask in the drive-through. I work from home though, so I don't have to spend eight, 10, 12 hours a day in a mask. I only need to put it on when I go to the grocery store or the pharmacy. Now, with the more transmissible Omicron variant spreading, experts say you may need to step up your mask game and grab an N95. They're considered the gold standard. No mask, mask, double mask, N95. Some ask in frustration why guidelines keep changing. The virus keeps changing. If that virus would just stay put and stop evolving and changing, then guidance wouldn't change. But... You know, we're watching a virus mutate in real time. Those gold standard N95s now the hot item this holiday season. Some saying they're flying off store shelves or being sold at higher price points. It's like toilet paper two years ago. Begging questions around accessibility. Anything you have to buy privately is always going to have a cost as a barrier. And for some people, even if a mask is only a couple of dollars, That's money that they simply don't have. Advocates like Painter saying government needs to step in and look at ways to distribute N95s to people who can't find or afford them. And if you can't get the gold standard for now, experts say the mask you have is better than nothing. Travis Fortnum, Global News, St. John. Well, for a second year, the pandemic is having a major impact over the holidays. But a group of singers in Surrey is doing their part to make the season just a little brighter. Carolers from the Phoenix Society set up in Surrey's Green Timbers Forest to spread a little Christmas spirit. The group's made up of those taking part in the Society's musical therapy program, which is designed to help people battling addiction in treatment by giving them an outlet to express their emotions creatively. Coming up later, the puzzle master of Pompeii, how a robot is helping to rebuild shattered frescoes once buried under a volcano. And in sports, staying busy with a schedule on hold, what the Canucks are doing while Omicron stalls the season. The death toll in the Philippines from Typhoon Rai has now surpassed 200. More than 50 people are still unaccounted for. The typhoon was the strongest to hit the country this year. At its peak, the storm packed sustained winds of 195 kilometers an hour and gusts of up to 270 kilometers an hour. Many provinces are grappling with downed communications, no power, and other areas are completely inaccessible because of flooding. Well, after months of violent eruptions and lava flows that consumed hundreds of homes on the Spanish island of La Palma, the volcano has gone quiet. Still, scientists are keeping a very close eye on it as residents hope for a return to normal. 
One scoop at a time, Daniel Geronimo's house emerges from volcanic ash. Spanish soldiers help him clear months of debris. The truth is, this is very difficult, he says, cleaning up while hoping the volcano stays quiet. For three months, lava spewed from La Palma's volcano, destroying thousands of homes and livelihoods. But now it's back asleep. Scientists have recorded no seismic activity. They believe magma underground is cooling in the lava vents. For residents on the Canary Island, it seems like a Christmas miracle. It's a great feeling that the eruption is over, says this banana farmer. Spanish police now have a new mission, helping reunite lost pets with their owners. We found the cats crossing the lava, says this officer. They approached us and we gave them food and water while checking to see if they have a microchip so we can return them. As efforts turned to rebuilding the island in Spain's capital, Santa came a little early. Over the weekend, thousands of runners participated in a charity race to raise money for the victims of the eruption while also sending a holiday message. They are not alone. Ian Lee, CBS News. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at that weather forecast as we count down to the big day, Christy. That's right. The days to come are going to be weather wintry. That's for sure. We officially change over to winter tomorrow morning, 7.59 a.m. And it's going to feel like this. This is my biggest concern tomorrow. So we start off cold, frosty, dry, though. It's tomorrow afternoon that the rainfall is going to push in. And while that pushes in, we have a risk of freezing rain in these areas highlighted here in red. So we're talking about Metro Vancouver, Fraser Valley, parts of Vancouver Island and the Sunshine Coast. Uh, Icy conditions on the roads. If you can avoid travel, late tomorrow so that's late afternoon towards the evening hours right into Wednesday morning I recommend doing so because of these dangerous conditions not only that we have the potential for snow especially out through the East Fraser Valley House Sound but Metro Vancouver could see anywhere from zero to four centimeters as well so that whole mix could be quite dangerous again late tomorrow into Wednesday morning here's a look at the system driving in we're going to see significant snow tomorrow across northern BC and then spreading tomorrow night into southern BC into Wednesday Wednesday morning. So here's how much snowfall we could see. We're talking about 5 to 15, 20 centimeters across northern regions. Less expected across the south, but still some significant snow, especially for the mountain passes. Coquihalla expecting significant snow tomorrow. Now, the extreme cold. Uh, Saturday is Christmas Day. Sunday is Boxing Day. Boxing Day is our biggest concern at this point and then into next week. This is a heads up because it's days away, but we're talking about 10 to potentially 20 degrees below seasonal with that 20 degrees below seasonal in through the interior region. So we're giving everyone a heads up because not only could it be extreme cold, but for a prolonged period of time. So we're definitely concerned about this. In the short term, snowfall for northern BC tomorrow. These areas across the south, it's tomorrow tomorrow evening into Wednesday morning. South coast tomorrow afternoon, especially tomorrow evening and overnight, we have a risk of freezing rain and the potential for snow. Perfect timing as we officially transition into winter. But definitely I'm concerned about uh, treacherous conditions on the roads late tomorrow into Wednesday morning. This was picture perfect. I have a rose actually in my garden right now, which is amazing for this time of year. And of course it was incredibly frosty this morning. So Dimitri, thanks for sharing that photo with us. You'll likely see frost again tomorrow morning. Back to you guys. Beautiful. Thank you, Christy. Frozen Roses. Good name for a band. (laughs)
Uh, all right, Squires here now with a look ahead to sports. I don't know why that came There was the stone, stone roses. There was the stone roses. That's right. <laughs> all right, so um, I think we have some good news from the Vancouver Canucks. The uh, news that the COVID spread seems to have stopped. The last two days we've had no no positive tests. Everything's been negative, and that's, that's probably the reason we're able to practice. That's why they uh, were able to practice today. That's right. And they also got Luke Shen back from the COVID list, so they now only have five in protocol. And coming up later, how artificial intelligence is helping rebuild Pompeii and the famous frescoes damaged by years of neglect. Remember those um, schedulers, the, t- the league schedulers? They're getting a workout again. Oh, those people. Yeah. Yes, they are. And they'll probably have to work the next couple of days, too, to try and figure out how to fit all the games. I think 44 games have now been postponed in the NHL, most of them in the last week. And the NHL says it will stop the season on Wednesday rather than Friday, take a longer Christmas break with so many teams dealing with COVID issues. Now, the Canucks, of course, already had their final four games before Christmas postponed. The two last weekend against the Leafs and Coyotes. They were supposed to play San Jose tomorrow and Anaheim on Thursday. But because they aren't playing those games, they are allowed to practice. And that is what they did this morning. It stops the momentum, of course, from the six straight wins they have. But it also gives them more time to learn some of Bruce Boudreaux's systems. Practice is the one thing Bruce Boudreaux and the Vancouver Canucks haven't done a lot of since he's taken over as head coach. But with a postponement of games until at least December 27th, the Canucks are making good use of their downtime with what can best be described as a mini training camp. Like, I've still um, not been able to go over things and we've just sort of ad-libbed a few situations. I'd like to get it where we know what we're doing all the time from uh, even this week, if we have time to go over face-offs, uh, uh, playing them a little bit differently than we have been. So, um, it, you just, it, like I said earlier uh, last week, I said it's amazing how you don't think about how important training camp is, but it certainly is important uh, when you want to implement new things. Miller moving in. Rishai scores! You could also argue not playing a game for over a week might be the ultimate buzzkill for a hockey team that's won six straight. Under Boudreaux, the Canucks have shoveled themselves out of the Pacific Division basement and are now within sniffing distance of a playoff spot. Bigger challenge awaiting whenever they resume play is keeping the positive mojo flowing. The beat goes on. They're within a game of 500. Yeah, I mean, it is disappointing a little bit. Um, But again, um, you know, we can't let this hinder us at all. and, And it does give us some... Uh, a little bit of time to get guys back in the lineup and get us healthy again and, and ready to go for uh, the 27. As for those ready to go, the Canucks still have five players in COVID protocol. According to Coach Boudreau, neither Tyler Mott, Tyler Myers, Brad Hunt, Tucker Pullman, or Yuho Lamico are showing serious signs of illness. Another positive is Luke Shen, who came down with the Omicron virus and was the first player in COVID protocol six days ago, is back on the ice practicing. Yeah, I feel good. Obviously, uh, you know, sick for maybe, you know, three, four days in there and just general, I guess, flu or, or cold symptoms that I guess you'd have in the wintertime, just, uh, you know, some body aches and, and throat. But, you know, being off the ice for 
know, just just over a week, obviously, is uh, the challenging part to, to kind of get back here. But luckily, we, you know, we got a bit of a, a pause here and, you know, time to work through it. And today at practice, Thatcher Demko was kicking it old school, taking it back to the mid-90s with the old flying skate mask. A tribute, of course, to Kurt McLean, who looked exactly the same and played just as well when he was Vancouver's goalie way back when. Love those. I mean, I love this. I love this gear too. I love, I don't know, I'm a big fan of the skate jersey. Thatch said it was uh, a mock-up of, I think it was um, Kirk McLean's or something. I think it was an uh, old goaltender's exact replica of his gear when he wore it. And um, I thought it looked pretty sweet out there. It'll even look better with a, a black jersey on for sure. Those were the best jerseys. Bring them back permanently. Okay, this game is supposed to be Saturday, Raiders and Browns, because of a big COVID outbreak on the Browns roster. They had to play it today, and there's a nice touchdown catch by Brian Edwards from Derek Carr. 7-0 in the first for Vegas. Nick Chubb, who's not ill, but he is sick when he runs, scores a touchdown there from four yards away, 10-7. They had to play with their third-string quarterback, Nick Mullins, because of the uh, COVID outbreak. He throws a touchdown pass here to Harrison Bryant. This is with just under four minutes to go, and it looked like the Browns might hold on and win this game. But they couldn't get a first down the next time they got the ball, and the Raiders still had a chance to get down the field and get in field goal range. Derek Carr to Zay Jones. So this is with seconds remaining. They let it go down to the very last seconds and finally Daniel Carlson for the win and he gets it from 48 yards away. Raiders beat Cleveland in Ohio. Uh, Last ski cross race for the women in 2021 and two Canadians are in the final. North Van's Mariel Thompson and Ottawa's Hannah Schmidt but they uh, are trailing the field here. Sandra Naisland of Sweden and Switzerland's Fanny Smith who are dominant on this circuit. They go down 1-2, and as far as the Canadians are concerned, Mariel Thompson got the bronze, and Schmidt got fourth place, but that was her best finish ever. So there you go. Sounds good. Thanks very okay. much, Squire. Up next, solving an ancient puzzle, how robots are re- rebuilding at least part of the lost city of Pompeii. Families across Canada will spend at least some of the holiday season crouched over infuriating jigsaw puzzles. But in Pompeii, archaeologists are getting a robot to do it. And in this case, the puzzle is the crumbling ruins of the ancient city. Redmond Shannon reports. In the centuries since the ruins of Pompeii were rediscovered and excavated from volcanic rock, many of the buildings have fallen apart. Careless digging, rainfall, clumsy tourists and even Second World War bombings have damaged the ruins and in particular colourful frescoes. 
putting them back together is hugely time-consuming. It also doesn't increase the knowledge or the understanding or the expertise of the archaeologists of the conservators. It's just putting the pieces together. So researchers in Italy are planning to 3D scan every single piece of some frescoes and use artificial intelligence and robots to put them back together. We have also to take into consideration there could be parts of the drawing that is over the fresco that are not visible easily. So we will use um, this type of technology to investigate what could, be, could have been there. In 2010, the gladiators' barracks collapsed. Photos can be used like the cover of a jigsaw puzzle box to help with reconstruction. But with the so-called House of the Lovers hit by Allied bombs in 1943, AI will have to work harder. Because we do not have the, the box and we don't know how it looked like in the past. The project aims to help everyone in archaeology focus on research instead of puzzle solving. But if our system uh, works, then we can export that technology and we will be able to uh, reconstruct uh, frescoes that nowadays are just stored into storerooms. The project is expected to take four years, but that's only the blink of an eye for patient historians. Redmond Shannon, Global News, London. What if they're missing, like, one of the edge pieces? Or the, or the corner piece. Or the corner piece. It would drive you crazy, <laughs> wouldn't it? Uh, funny enough, our music historian has come up with a rock and roll reference to Pompeii as well. There was a live album done by Pink Floyd at an old, obviously old, amphitheater in Pompeii. No crowd, though, just the film crew. I got to oh, look that up. Yes, way back in the early 70s, long before I was born. <laughs> okay, uh, very quick mention, I guess, of some of the, uh, the extreme-ish weather we're going to be uh, seeing in the next little while here. Christy? So a cold, frosty morning tomorrow. You'll have to scrape your windshield, probably. Uh, tomorrow afternoon is my biggest concern with the risk of freezing rain. So it's tomorrow afternoon, evening, and overnight. Uh, if you can avoid travel for the south coast, I would recommend doing so. Okay, staying put. I'll be right here. <laughs> Have a good Me night. Too. Have a good Six night. Six feet away. Good yeah, night, all. Exactly.